Ezekiel chapter 46, verse 9. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate, and he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them. When they go out, he shall go out. At the feasts and the appointed festivals, the grain offering with the young bull shall be an ephah, and with the ram an ephah, and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with the hen of oil, to an ephah. When the prince provides a free will offering, either a bird's offering or peace offerings is a free will offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be opened for him, and he shall offer his bird's offering or his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day, then he shall go out, and after he has gone out, the gate shall be shut. You shall provide a lamb a year old without blemish for burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning, you shall provide it. And you shall provide a grain offering with, its, with it morning by morning, one-sixth of an ephah and one-third of a hen of oil to moisten the flour as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It's their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Then he brought me through the entrance was at the side of the gate, the north row of the holy chambers for the priests, and behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so transmit holiness to the people. Then he brought me out to the outer court, and led me round to the four corners of the court, and behold, in each corner of the court there was another court. In the four corners of the court were small courts, 40 cubits long and 30 broad. The four were of the same size. On the inside, around each of the four courts, was a row of masonry, with parts made at the bottom of the rows all around. Then he said to me, These are the kitchens, where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. message and 
And, and she tried to draw Jesus into a geographical debate. Hmm. And the reason I, it was, I was drawn into this and in the study is when I came across the geography, just thinking about the geography of whether this is a cubit or whether this is a rod, whether this is 18 inches or whether this is 12 feet. And that's a big, <laughs> that's a big jump. <laughs> But if it's a, if it, and, and most of the old scholars, and I tend to favor the old scholars, uh, say that the measurement was a, a reed or a rod. And so um, when it says cubit, it, it's referring to the temple, and that's 500 by 500. And that's still a huge building if you just think about the size and the footprint of a building. But the measurement of the holy district could be as much as 60 miles across. And, and the Lord Jesus in his interview with the Samaritan woman, if that's the case, where do we put this, this new temple district? And that would encompass both the Samaritan disputed mountain as well as Mount Zion, possibly. Um, that's just sheer speculation on my part and just sheer thinking about the literal numbers. But remember what Jesus said. She tried to say, we say worship on this mountain. You say worship on that mountain. Jesus' answer to her is, the time has come and now is when true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And that's the whole message of the gospel. And I, I believe the apostle Paul the Apostle John, all the writers of the New Testament were saturated with the imagery and the vision of Ezekiel. You certainly see it in the book of Revelation, but you also see it in Paul's epistles. Uh, he's saturated with this, these visions of God's holiness and what it means uh, for worship. So, so we have the, the great blessing of having... Uh, the New Testament interpret, and and I never, I, I don't think it's. There are some schools of interpretation, and even in our reform world, that says no, you just need to look at the context in that time and not take into consideration. But one of the one of the primary uh, hermeneutics or principles of interpretation that we have in the Reformed faith is Scripture interprets Scripture. And the plain things interpret the things that are unplain. And I think that we should do that here. So that's why I entitled this message, Worship in Spirit and in Truth. Three, uh, three quick points. One, in verses 9, um, um, nine and 10 of chapter 46. The purpose of true worship. Um, the people are to enter and to, go, and to go out of worship a certain way. The entrance and the exits are clearly marked. And whether this is uh, moving through the vast temple area or, or smaller temple area, we just remember the smaller temple area district is seven miles. Uh, whether you think of that as uh, uh, 
seven miles or 60 miles. It's still a vast district that they enter into the temple, which is this huge uh, temple, uh, 500 cubits by 500 cubits. That's, uh, I, th I think, around 750 feet by 750 feet. That's a huge building by any standard. Uh, the people come in and they proceed out in order to go uh, and be cleansed, first of all, and then to enter into um, uh, the world again, their day-to-day -day work world. Now, that's a, that is a, the language is complicated as we read through here and we see this, but it's a reminder of what... The job of ministers is what our job is. We are to uh, faithfully apply the Word of God, read it and apply it, in order to equip you to do works of ministry. That's our that's our purpose. Ephesians four twelve, uh, where the Apostle Paul outlines all of the various offices in the church uh, the one office that we know still exists is pastors and teachers what are the purpose of the purposes of these offices the purposes of these offices are to equip the saints for works of service or works of ministry that, that's and that's what the temple worship is all about you go in and you go out you come in and you go out and you do this week by week. You do it every Sabbath and, and, and this is how you serve the Lord. You do this in order to live faithfully as a citizen in God's nation and then you do it also in preparation to live in his presence with every with those believers from every tongue and tribe and nation forever. It is practice for heaven. In the meantime, we're not called to some passive role. We're called to an active role, an active role of service. And so when the word is rightly read and lightly applied, the result is ministry. It's the result is serving. So that's the, the first point. The purpose of worship is to equip the saints. It's first and foremost to glorify God. And how do we do that? By equipping the saints to do ministry. To which, what is ministry? Ministry is serving and giving glory to God. Second, the regulation of worship. We see that in uh, 11 through 15. And again, here are these feasts, these festivals, the grain offering with the young bull, an ephah, that's about a gallon. Uh, you know, and these uh, measurements are big measurements. Uh, they, they show the again the expense and the value of worship uh, and how central uh, sacrifice is to worship. We talk about in our churches. We talk about the regulative principle of worship what is the regulative principle of worship is seeking to do all only those things uh, that are uh, commanded uh, in the word of god now how we do that and, and 
what is that? Now, that's always a matter of discussion. But as much as we possibly can, we seek to order our worship along these lines. For, I'll give you an example. For example, we, there's nowhere in Scripture that talks about these wonderful slides and, and these, these outlines. And, 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 and further, there's nothing about um, amplification or, or, um, or lighting or, or any of those things. But from good and necessary inference from the Word of God, we know what God expects, and we reduce it to its essence. And He, the the, the sacrifices that are that are mentioned here, are morning sacrifices. In fact, it's it's peculiar to these passages that the evening sacrifices are not emphasized, but they they are in the regular law of God, and worship on the Sabbath included morning and evening sacrifice. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the revitalization of our evening service because it mirrors that the Old Testament sacrificial system. It, it helps us and encourages us to keep uh, the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest that he has given his church. So you have that regulation, you have the the regulation of, uh, of, of offering. The main emphasis here is on the offerings that the prince was uh, a, was supposed to provide on the path of, on behalf of the people that the people were to provide for themselves. They were to be offered, and this is a New Testament principle as well. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians and applying the gospel as he always does in the last part of his books in 1 Corinthians 16.2 says on the first day of the week obviously the day of worship each of you is to put something aside and store it up uh, so uh, that he can give to the service of the Lord and that he may prosper uh, it is essential to your spiritual health to your spiritual prosperity that you learn to give and to cultivate the grace of giving. And to be mindful at all times that central to this, this regulation of our worship is sacrifice. Again, go to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 and for 11 chapters of the book of Romans uh, the Apostle Paul hammers the doctrines of grace he hammers that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and that, that works have no part in our righteousness and then uh, he talks about Israel in chapters 9 through 11 and how how uh, God still has a plan to graft uh, back the people of, uh, of, of the Jewish heritage back in to his, um, his people. Uh, he's not abandoned them, and he will graft them back into uh, his, uh, his, his, uh, his olive tree. And, they, and there's one olive tree. There's not two uh, uh, pe uh, peoples of God. There's one people of God that consists of Jew and Gentile alike that will worship the Lord forever. And after he hammers all those truths, 
He comes to the application of those truths. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal then to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the only reasonable response to all that God has done for you is to give yourself entirely to him. And then finally, we want to talk about the result of worship in verses 16 uh, through 24. The result of worship is doing righteousness, doing justice. Um, the purpose of worship is to produce holiness in God's people. Um, this is, we are to be a set-apart people, and we are to live holy lives, and the purpose of the sacrifices and the purpose of the work of, of the temple priests, uh, the, the Zadok priests in Ezekiel, is the same purpose that, that the church has today, and that is to produce holiness through the ordinary means of grace and applying them to life. And holiness always produces love for God and love for people who are made in the image of God and a desire to share the gospel. Worship will always be the result. I mean, uh, righteousness will always be the result of worship in spirit and in truth. When our heart is changed, when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, he, he not only spoke about, to her about true worship, he spoke to her about her life. He spoke to her about her, her uh, many uh, failures in, in um, moral failures that were evident and he spoke to our heart and spoke uh, of his power and the holy spirit's power to change her and uh, and um, what did she do she went and told everybody come and hear man that's told me everything i've ever done come and hear the one who who forgives sins and transforms lives and, and that's what uh, the whole Bible is about, and that's what our, our scripture tonight is about. That transformation through the forgiveness of grace, through the atoning sacrifices for sin from death. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word read, applied, and the opportunity to come into your presence, uh, proclaiming the Lord's death and the Lord's Supper. Father, transform our hearts and minds through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.